So tonight we're talking about, before we do the college, we're talking about heaven and hell. So we're doing the four last things in Advent, as you remember, um, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Hopefully, by the end of this, you will come away with a feeling that it's not uh, a depressing theme to talk about in December when everyone else is singing about birth and life, but that's our ultimate goal, is that thinking about these things helps us really to have confidence in birth and life and faith, and that death, judgment, heaven, and hell are all realities, mm -hmm. but we know where our hope is so that we're no longer afraid of them. And so it's a, it's a hope that is grounded in, in the goodness and love of our Lord, which is why this season is a particular time in which we, we are mindful of those things. Um, when we live in a time and where people are in denial of their own mortality and of, uh, of justice, you know, eternal cosmic justice, we take it very seriously. And, and that, that seriousness enables us to enjoy every moment of life here and now. So it's not morbid, it's not depressing, it's not sad, it's serious, it's sobering, but it's so that we can, we can live life now. And before we go in, I mean, with the great, the great Dickens Carol, what's the greatest Dickens story around this time? Christmas, Christmas Carol. Here's a man who came to know death, judgment, heaven, and hell in one night. Really. Um, and then the next morning when he woke up was full of joy and full of life because he seriously considered the four last things. And that's really what we're, what not us, but what the church is calling us to do in Advent. Today is an ember day. Four times a year, St. Lucy's um, is the winter day, and uh, you particularly pray for those to be ordained. Let us pray. Almighty God, the giver of all good gifts, who of thy divine providence hast appointed various orders in thy church. Give thy grace, we humbly beseech thee, to all who are called to any office and ministry for thy people. And so fill them with the truth of thy doctrine and clothe them with holiness of life, that they may faithfully serve before thee to the glory of thy great name and for the benefit of thy holy church. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. So, we've got a, we've got a lot to cover. Tradition will be sprinkled into the scripture portions. Um, and maybe a good way to do this is, um, let me set quick background on how we talk about heaven, and then you can go into Revelation and Ezekiel, and then I'll, you know, close with references all across the scriptures to kind of help us talk about um, hell as well. So when we talk about heaven, think about the Our Father and the Creed. What are the two references to heaven there? Our Father, who art in heaven, and then the Creed, um, He ascended into heaven. Who's the He? Christ. Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, and from thence He shall come to do what? Judge the quick and the dead. Yeah, so we've got couple descriptions just right off the bat from the things that we say every day. Um, heaven is where the Father is, and it's also where Jesus came from, ascended to, and will come again from. So I think keeping that in mind, that heaven is always the presence of God, um, helps us as we, Father Steve will kind of get into 
temple analogies, um, comparing heaven to the temple, all get into a little bit of the Garden of Eden, and we'll talk about the different words used for heaven. The thing that kind of links them all together is the presence of God. And so that's when you'll see why descriptions of like the Ark of the Covenant, why descriptions of the temple, of the Garden of Eden, and of heaven and Revelation all share similar language because it's all talking about the presence of God, and that is where God rightly dwells is, is heaven. And then when we talk about hell, there will be nuances that we give, but at its core, eternal hell is the absence of the presence of God or the separation from God. If you keep those in mind, I think when we do a broad sweep of what the scriptures say about all of this, it's just helpful to kind of keep those in your headlights the whole time. Um, Because that's really, everything is kind of flowing from those two key doctrines. So I did this earlier earlier this week with a group of people, but um, what we first have to do before we really start to understand what heaven is, and hell is the antithesis of what heaven is. So we're going to start with what heaven is, and then hell begins to define itself, mm-hmm. is that we really need to uncouple our association with all the images, unhelpful images we've been given about heaven. And as you've heard me say in previous weeks, what is um, American mythology? What, what, what is the book of American mythology? Where do we find the stories that give us the images and metaphors of which we understand life? It's Hollywood. It's movies. Mm-hmm. Whenever we're trying to explain something or talk to people or we're trying to sum up a feeling in life, we often quote a movie, right? I mean, we do that all the time. That's what I mean by it's our, it's our mythology. It's how we understand the world around us, interpreted through art, but not fine art, often <laughs> crude art, which is, which is, which is Hollywood. So um, some of you have done this already, but, but let's just go through a list of all of the, um, all of the, it, the great television shows or movies or even pieces of literature in which images of what heaven is like um, have been influential in your understanding or, or when you're hearing, for instance, in Scripture about heaven, of no fault of your own, your mind immediately goes back to either Michael Landon and Victor French in Highway to Heaven or something like that. But what, what, are, the, what are those scenes, characters, images that come immediately without thinking of it? There's tons of them. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Uh-huh. Clarence the angel, yes. Right. Yep. And so when you think about Clarence and the angel, how is Clarence the angel personified in the movie? Not quite there yet. Well, I'm talking about visually. How is he personified? Sorry? Is he an old man or was he a star? Uh, star. Star. Yeah, yeah. star. Oh, uh, before, yeah. Stars. You have twinkling stars talking, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Right. What does heaven look like according to Hollywood? Clouds. Clouds. Can you think? Can you think of specific movies or instances of uh, of of where heaven is just uh, a fog machine? God. George Burns. Yeah, George Burns. Oh God. Yeah. Anything else? City of Angels. City of Angels. Mm -hmm. There's no heavenly scene so much, but, but mm-hmm. definitely um, angelic beings, and, and we have an idea of what sort of angels are like. Monty Python. Monty Python. Say more. 
Is it Life of Brian or Holy Grail? Life of Brian is yeah. the Jesus I, you know, I've never seen Life of Brian. I cannot bring myself to watch it. I don't it's, mind Monty it's Python. A, it's an experience. I like Holy Grail, but I have a... I need to watch it because I have a... I, I am not offended easily, but I have, a, I have a short fuse for blasphemy. So I've never yeah. seen like Dogma with George Carlin as God. No, no, it was Alanis Morissette as God. And George Carlin was the... Was the I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do Life it. Life of Brian's interesting. I tell you mine, and I mentioned it already. A little boy watching the in, the intro to Highway to Heaven. What was the intro? Do you remember that? How how the how the credits began? You were flying through clouds, and I remember maybe watching with my grandmother the soap operas, and someone you know had a vision of heaven, and it was always one or two people walking by themselves in the midst of a fog machine. Right? I've never seen in Hollywood an image of a populated heaven. Have you? Never. I can never think of one. Um, trying to think, what was that movie? Uh, the Heavenly Kid was a movie that came out in the 80s, and heaven was an escalator that went up to mm. clouds and light. But it was always individualistic, and it was always sort of kind of narcissistic. And when you hear people talk about what they think heaven will be like, in my experience, the response has always been heaven, or what they hope heaven to be like, is I hope heaven will be like Christmas morning of 1977. You know, whatever, whatever that year was for them that was this sort of Elysian uh, nirvana where everything was perfect. Everyone was together, everyone was alive, everyone was in harmony, and there were all these good feelings. It's the beach house in that summer of 87. Whatever, whatever it was, they find that one, lot, that moment or scene on earth that they just want to never end. There's a lot missing in those scenes, in those metaphors. One on one that's missing is, it's just us or it's just me. And Hollywood reinforces that by making it individualistic. Um, and, um, and the other thing, it's always just about my presence and the presence of those that I'm concerned about. And what I have found in, in heavenly movies or movies that deal with heaven is the presence of God is always absent. Unless it is George Burns or Morgan Freeman or Alanis Morissette or, or whoever it's, it may be. But the absolute glory of God is absent. Again, the presence of God is always reduced to a comedian, right? Um, so let's think about that. And let's think about what Father Luke said about the Our Father who art in heaven. Let's, let's um, understand the poetry and the limitations in that, because that means God is in heaven. Therefore, what is greater, God or heaven, according to that line? Heaven, which we know to be wrong. So... We understand we're using, we're using spatial imagery to convey a truth, mm -hmm. even if it's not completely accurate. Maybe another way to say, we believe in heaven who art in God. Mm -hmm. So that heaven is all about presence, and I'm foreshadowing where we're getting to the other part, hell is all about absence. Mm -hmm. Okay? But we're adoring God. Our Father, we are in heaven. We know where to find Him. Mm -hmm. And we know where to find heaven, which is with God. With Him, yeah. right? Kind of the circular. So heaven is not so much, and this is not blasphemy, nor is this, nor is this 
a new theology. It's just, it's implied if you think this through, because we already know God cannot be contained, right? Heaven is not a geographic location in the cosmos. Heaven is a presence and not so much a place. I'm not saying it's not real, but I'm saying it's to be with God and not to be in Boca Raton. There's a big difference. Inversely, hell is not a place like Hell, Michigan, 2008 before I, the, the, the day, I felt awful, the day before um, Lee Tolberry called me. No, the, no, Lee had already called me in 2008 and offered me um, the position here. My birthday is April 13th and my parish in Georgia for my birthday. They're sweet people. I felt, I felt really bad. <laughs> they, there was a, there's a, there's a town in Michigan called Hell, Michigan. It's, it's probably not even incorporated, probably has 300 people. They make their income by, by selling mayorships of a day of the town. That's funny. And so their, their present for me was to be the mayor of Hell, Michigan for a day. <laughs> and so what happened was I had citizens call me all day long saying the dam had broke, you know, the dam had busted loose and all this. That's funny. And they sent, me a, they sent me a vial of dirt from Hell and all these sort of things. And it was really, really, really kind of funny. And then the very next day I had a vestry meeting and say, I'm leaving, I'm going to Mississippi. And they all said, go to hell. You know, it was really, it's really, I felt really, really bad. But hell is not in Michigan or anywhere else. It's the absence. All right, so, so with that, if you have your Bibles with you or you have your phones, go to the Revelation of John chapter 4. And if you want a Bible, there's tons in the, in the book back there. Don't let the book of Revelation scare you. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a hopeful book, actually. Um... So, um, I, what's going on social media now, which is pretty funny, uh, that if uh, said that if St. Paul saw the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's pretty true. I think it's pretty one, true. One, two, three, maybe. One, two, three, yeah. So, all right, so St. Saint, Saint Paul didn't write Revelation, but the Apocalypse to John, I mean, John did, St. John, which is, which is why in art, here's a tradition component, John is always viewed as being young, Mm-hmm. Uh, because the revelation of John was written after the destruction of the temple, because we know in John's gospel and in the apocalypse and all the things that John mentions happens after 70 AD. So for John to be with Jesus in 33 AD, to be present in 80, 90 AD, he had to have been young. So da Vinci, why John looks so young, childlike, or, you know, very young, is because, again, People early on, even though they, before they had historical criticism at their fingertips, they weren't stupid people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they understood these things. So, um, it's usually the one without a beard. Correct. <laughs> I mean, in da, Vin- da Vinci's Last Supper, he's the one without a beard. Mm-hmm. Not Mary Magdalene, thank you, Dan Brown, but, 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 but John the Evangelist. So the first three chapters are John, um, is John, is the letters to the seven churches. And so in chapter four is where we have the first scene, not in the Bible, but the first scene in um, Revelation of what heaven is like. Probably the first scene of what heaven is like in the Bible comes from the book Job, possibly, which doesn't show so much details, but it's a sort of the heavenly court. That's, that's for 2023. So chapter 4, 
after this, and the after this are the seven letters. That's why I mentioned that. After this, I looked, and lo, in heaven, an open door, exclamation point. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up hither, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. He was in the Spirit. What do you think that means? Don't overthink it. Is heaven a geographic place? So how do you get there? In the presence of God. It's in the Spirit. In the Spirit. Until there is a new heaven and a new earth, which is when the glorified bodies are all there. And lo, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, exclamation point. And he who sat there appeared like Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clad in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. From the throne issue flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder, and before the throne burn seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And round the throne on each side of the throne are four four living creatures, full of eyes, front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, Worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory and power, glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and by thy will they existed and were created. Tons and tons and tons of things. Now, Father wants 30 minutes, and I've got two minutes left. So, if you... Uh, We're going to have to cut a lot of things if you, I, I am too. If you, if you are fans of contemporary Christian music in the 1990s, the band Casting Crowns, uh, yeah, yeah. where do you think that comes from, right? Casting their crowns before him, taking them off. Um, keep in mind... Keep in mind, whenever you see Father and I and, and Duane uh, take off our berettas at the Holy Name, it's a way casting our crown down at the Holy Name of Jesus, which gives, gives a, an homage to what heaven is like. So this is describing the reality of what presence of God is. It's not giving us the latitude and longitude. Let's just talk about the main details that are here of what heaven is like. Um, there is a throne and there is the Lamb um, God seated on the throne. There is jasper and carnelian and emerald, so basically red and, and green are around. Let me just say this, this is the exact reason why in the new church those colors are chosen. So the sanctuary floor is red and green and white uh, and gold for that reason. And also it says that there is a, a, like a sea of glass, that's the, that's the white marble, to show us that once we get into the sanctuary, this is a foretaste of heaven. Also it's around the baptismal font, to show us that is, that is where we are incorporated into Christ, 
which brings us to close to heaven. It's also in the Gooch Chapel where we hope for the resurrection of the dead, which also brings us to that heavenly city. So those ghost colors are, are chosen for a reason. But there is none of the things that we typically associate with uh, a narcissistic, individualistic, happy moment on earth. This is all about the presence of God. It's a bit unsettling with um, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and seven torches of fire, which is why traditionally in churches, and I can't get Dwayne to climb up there yet, but typically (laughs) um, over the altar rail, you have seven lamps burning that are staggered. You have three on one side, three on one side, and one hanging down. Um, Those are what you see in Revelation. Because what is to happen in, in the Eucharist is an image, a foretaste of heaven. And when you read this and then reflect on your experience in worship, hopefully there is great resonance. And that's not because we're trying to manufacture heaven. That's exactly what the liturgy is designed to, to bring us in contact with. It's not done by a committee. It's, it's received. It's handed over. And that's, that's what we have. The four living creatures on either side with the face of a, a human, an ox, um, a, a lion, and an eagle. Those are all, as you I'm sure know, are the traditional images of, of whom? The evangelists. The evangelists. 100%. St. Matthew is the man. Um, St. Luke is the ox. St. Mark is the lion. Who's been to Venice? You been to Venice? What did you see in, 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 in St. Mark's Square? Lions, right? Everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, images of lions. Not, not, not walking. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay, Sally. Sally. You can go. Never going to bed. There are images of lions everywhere, Um, and um, and then Saint John is the eagle. Why are those associated with those evangelists? The the traditional answer is, if you look at each gospel, how they begin, it's associated with that image, which, by the way, is also in Ezekiel chapter one. The same four living creatures with the same faces. So Matthew's gospel begins with, you know, 40 verses or so of a genealogy, human beings. Um, Mark's gospel begins immediately. Mark is to the point. It's John the Baptist, a lion crying in the wilderness. Luke's gospel, very much about the sacrificial nature of Jesus, so the, the, the ox. And then John begins lofty. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So so here we have in heaven the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, of who the Lamb is. Eyes on the front and the back. There's nothing hidden. It's all out in the open. Twenty-four elders clad in white. What does white mean? White means pure. Purity. Purity. Completely purity. From Psalm 51, wash me whiter than snow. I'm just pure, not stained. Twenty-four. Why is twenty-four significant? Twenty-four divided by two is twelve. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles, the fullness of the people of God. Uh, and then what are they doing there? They're praising God and they're offering up prayers. Are they praying for themselves? No. Who are they praying for? has to be us. Because why, why would you pray if you're in the presence of God? You praise, but there are no petitions in heaven for yourself because you're there in the full presence of God. And how are the prayers um, symbolized? What's the symbol of the prayers in heaven? Smoke. Smoke coming from? Earth. No, no. It's what is incense. burning? What's what is burning? Smoking? Incense. Incense. Yeah, exactly. In the book of Revelation, there is an altar, but it's not a sacrificial altar. It's an altar of incense. Mm-hmm. In the temple, there were two altars. There was the, the altar which you would sprinkle the blood, 
and then there was the altar in which you would burn incense. And so, for instance, when, when Zechariah was going to put incense on, the, on that altar, that's when he saw the angel Gabriel. That was his turn to go put incense uh, on that altar. So there's no more sacrifice. The sacrifice is over because Jesus Christ is the lamb that looks as if it were slain, but now is, is completely healed, and, and the only altar we have is one of incense. So all the things that we have in worship with um, the colors and the symbolism and the candles and the incense, all of it is designed to tell us this is not about us, this is about a presence, and it's the presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Sacrament. So heaven in Isaiah 7, um, I mean Isaiah 6, which is where we have the, the first instance of the seraphim crying back, to for, back and forth, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of hosts. The same thing we see images in Ezekiel 1, and the same thing we see in Revelation 4. Again, Holy, Holy, Holy. The cherubic hymn of the, of the angels going back and forth. This is heaven. Heaven is the presence of God. So I'll end it by saying this. You've heard me tell this joke before, but it's not a joke because it happens all the time. People ask me, Father, tell me what heaven is like. And they're hoping for Christmas 1978. They're hoping for Oak Island 1984. They're hoping for whatever it was. And I tell them, heaven is a mass that never ends. Really? And their eyes get big. Really? Think about that. No, 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 no. There's no guitars in Revelation 4. There's no shine, Jesus, shine. It's, it's peals of thunder and flashes of lightning, Sally. It's fear and trembling and incense. No guitars. Oh, I'm being broken. All right, I'll pass it to you. So, I'll end on that one. Yeah. Um... Just, just a couple of things to, let, let's do this. I, I said before that the presence of God is the thing linking all of these things. So I want to make two comparisons with Revelation and the Old Testament. So think of the Old Testament. What are some of the stories where the presence of God is in full force? Burning bush. Burning bush, which happens where? Yeah, top of a mountain. Um, we also get Mount Sinai, the, the clouds swirling around that. Okay, where else? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. Yep, same place. And then think Genesis. Garden. Garden of Eden. Okay, there you go. You guys guessed them. Those are the two I want to talk about. <laughs> but real quick, I want to make two um, kind of comparisons to show. I mean, John is not seeing something that is somehow so unique and unfathomable which is kind of how we read Revelation, you know, these bizarre images. And, and Father Steve did a good job of contextualizing. Some of this stuff is in Isaiah. I mean, we get all of these. Im- this is not new stuff. Um, it is a new revelation, but it's, it's using the same imagery. So Revelation 4, what he just read, the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a, what? What musical instrument? Trumpet. Yeah, that's the image we always get in heaven. We always think of an actual trumpet being sounded. This is a voice like a trumpet, but, um, and then it actually says later down somewhere, if I can find it quickly, yeah, there we go, coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thunder, and then the seven flaming torches. So, if you look at Exodus 19, which is the Mount Sinai, the theophany um, kind of image, 
Here's what it says, and, and if you want to flip there quickly, fine. If not, just listen. On the morning of the third day, there was lightning and thunder, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of a trumpet so loud that the people who were in the camp trembled. So this idea of a trumpet mixed with a thunderstorm is the presence of God at the Theophany, and it's the same thing that John sees in Revelation. So we're starting to kind of see that um, all of these things are linked by these common images of the presence of God. Well, that's what happened at Mount Sinai when God came down to earth. So it happens also in Revelation when we think about heaven. Um, one more from Revelation when we, when we talk about the Garden of Eden. If you look at Revelation 21, 18, there is something that I think is um, interesting. Revelation 21, 18 through 21. This is where we get the common, uh, you know, streets of gold. It says, the foundations of the, uh, the wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first, jasper, the second, sapphire, agate, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian. It goes on with all the jewels. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each of the gates is a single pearl. So we get the pearly gates, the streets of gold, all of this imagery that we think is, is you know, so obvious, um, for heaven, we actually see back in Eden as well. So in Genesis 2, um, a lot of times we think of Eden and we think of the rivers, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. In the same verse, we actually get descriptions of, of similar things about precious jewels. So here's what verse 12 says of Genesis 2. And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onyx stone are there. Now, I don't expect you to know this. Do you know what bedellium is? It's bedazzled. <laughs> it, it, it is. It, so it's, it's resin from plants that solidifies and turns clear. Um, manna in the Old Testament gets compared to bedellium. In a lot of translations, it translates it as like a pearl. It is clear, white, hard, circular resin from plants. So in the Garden of Eden, we get gold, pearls, and onyx, the precious stones. So again, just making these connections that when we think about Revelation, don't think of it like something so foreign. I mean, the scripture writers are picking up on similar ideas. There's thunder and lightning around God. He is so powerful that, you know, the, the, the skies are bending to his will. There are precious jewels showing that, you know, he is a king worthy of our recognition. How do we show recognition on this earth? Precious jewels and gold. Um, all these things are playing together. We're going we're to cover hell in about 10 minutes, um, so buckle up. Um, but just real quick, when you think about hell, you may know this, but the, the scriptures use all sorts of different words for hell. Um, are there some that stand out to you besides hell? Sheol. Sheol. Convention. <laughs> Dionysus and Convention, long meetings. Sorry, was this, is, this, is this thing on? <laughs> lake of Fire, yes, Lake of Fire is used. Can you think of any others? The pit. The pit, yeah. The pit, um, sometimes also called Gehenna or um, Tartarus or Tartarus, I don't know how you pronounce it. Um, different translations kind of use these. Uh, one other is Hades, and then another one is Gehenna. Gehenna is actually the one that Jesus uses the most. Um, in most of his speaking, he refers to Gehenna, 
Um, and that seems to be intentional. So hell sometimes gets translated for all of these words, but they all show up in the scriptures and they help us understand when we speak about hell, what are we actually talking about? So if I ask you, what is hell? What's your first image? Fire. 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 What else? Mental torment. Mental torment. Okay, but yeah, an idea of torment, right? Yeah. So, what does the creed say about hell? Jesus descended into hell. So what is he actually descending to? Um, say that again? Earth. Descending to earth, okay. Um, is he going to a place where there's living? No, it's, it's the dead. So, Basically, here's, here's the quickest way to understand this. Um, Sheol and Hades are similar words. Um, they, different, different etymologies, different languages. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. In the Old Testament, it is called Sheol, and it is the realm of the dead. Why is it called two different things in two different testaments? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Written in different just, languages. Just, just make, make it simple. It's just one's Hebrew and one's Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, there is a, a very popular scene, parable that Jesus tells that talks about Sheol and Hades, um, and it is the rich man and Lazarus. Do you know this story? So there, there's this image of Sheol or Hades, the realm of the dead. But what is actually happening there? Between the rich man and Lazarus, there is what? A great chasm. So the Old Testament, uh, I mean, David speaks in 2 Samuel. He says, um, For the waves of death encompass me, the cords of Sheol entangle me. So David recognizes his own kind of relationship with Sheol. Um, Amos says, Though they dig into Sheol, and that same phrase actually shows up in Jonah when they're rowing, trying to rescue their life. Sheol and Hades is just simply the dead. Everyone. It was a very inclusive term. But then in Matthew, or in Jesus' parable, we actually see, okay, it's all of the dead, but somehow there's separation. What did we talk about um, last week? I think this came up last week. If it didn't, let me just say paradise, that the other word for heaven, that Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Where is the rich man? Or where is Lazarus, excuse me? With Abraham, yeah, so the phrase Abraham's bosom emerges as this attempt to say, okay, Hades and Sheol, the realm of the dead, everyone's there, and yet there's somehow a divide. So within Hades and Sheol, well, there's Abraham's bosom, and then there's everyone else that are living in um, remorse for not, you know, accepting, accepting God. And, and remember, this is, Jesus is still living. He has not died and risen again yet. And what does the, what does the rich man say? Will you go to my brothers? And what does, what does um, Abraham say? What does Jesus say? They didn't listen to the prophets. They're not going to listen to me. So there's this, almost this sense that their outcome is already determined. They wouldn't accept Jesus because they didn't accept the prophets. So when we speak of Jesus descending into hell, that's where he's descending. Um, and this is what the, what the church, the catechism, um, the Roman Catholic Church makes this very clear, that he is descending into Hades or Sheol to rescue those in Abraham's bosom. So Sheol is somehow already divided, and, and he comes down, and it's as if he's preaching to all of them. But remember what he says in the parable. 
oh, those ones didn't accept the prophets. They're not going to accept me. Even when Jesus comes to Harrow Hell, they're not going to accept me. He comes to rescue those in Abraham's bosom. And then there's a turning point. Um, Jesus then speaks of this other term, Gehenna. Um, and I want to note two Old Testament passages about Gehenna, because this is where the fire and brimstone, the torment, this is where it comes up um, a little more obviously, because we might use hell for all of these descriptions, but the fire and torment is not necessarily what Sheol and Hades is. It's kind of a placeholder for the dead until they were harrowed by Jesus out of Abraham's bosom. Gehenna, though, when Jesus says, you know, depart from me, I never knew you, into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, that's Gehenna. So Gehenna has two um, Old Testament passages that are, I'm losing my little note cards here um, that I tried to uh, mark pages with, but Gehenna has two um, Old Testament passages that are kind of where we understand them from. The first one is from Second Chronicles 28. Verse 3. So, Gehenna is a translation of a word from the Old Testament. Hinnom. Um, it was a, a uh, valley, or sometimes it's called the son of Hinnom, the valley of the son of Hinnom. It was a place. So, Second Chronicles 28.3 says, He even made cast images for Baal. This is an evil king, Ahaz. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and made his sons pass through fire according to the abominable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So this is describing an evil king who is making abominable sacrifices. Uh, what is described here, and we'll see in a moment even more obviously, is child sacrifice. This was Gehenna. This was where the most wicked of the wicked happened. Um, this is where the evil kings did child sacrifices. The other instance where this uh, Gehenna or Hinnom shows up is in Jeremiah. And this one makes it even more obvious um, in case you don't catch it in Second Chronicles. This is um, the Lord talking to um, you know, all, of the, all of the abominations through Jeremiah. And I'm going to summarize it here. I'm not going to read all six verses, but here's, here is um, the summary of it. The Lord says, Go out into the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I am going to bring such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings into it to other gods, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent, and gone on building the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it enter my mind. So Hinnom is this valley outside of Jerusalem, actually, is outside of the city gates, where child sacrifice and wickedness was done, where burnt offerings to false gods were offered. So this becomes the Gehenna, the place of eternal torment. When Jesus speaks of Gehenna, this is Hades and Sheol, think temporary holding place for the dead. When you hear Gehenna, think of the cultural associations with hell. Eternity, fire, burning, wickedness. I mean, all of those have their root in this 
place where people were offering child sacrifices. Um, you know, the depths of wickedness, and we get this burnt offering, not in a good way as the Lord commanded, but in a, in a wicked way um, to the prophets of Baal. So when you hear, you know, Matthew say, eternal hellfire is prepared for the devil and his angels, or they will go to Gehenna, this is the imagery he's picking up on. And notice what is, what is happening in that valley. What is it actually at its root? It's wrongful worship. It is offering a false sacrifice. It's the wrong presence. Yeah, to false gods. It is acknowledging the presence of Baal and offering Baal innocent children. And what does God say? I do not want sacrifice. The sacrifice acceptable to me is a broken and contrite heart. Jesus wants self-sacrifice to the one true God. Gehenna is the place where false sacrifices are made to false gods. Um, and it's all about punishing the innocent. So, Sheol and Hades holding place for the dead. Um, Abraham's bosom is part of that. Um, God harrows that. They are rescued. And then, you know, think into the future. Now when we talk about Gehenna, that is this eternal place of, of hell where people have turned their backs on God. They have offered sacrifices to the false gods, you know, in, in trying to oppress the innocent. Um, all of those images. And I think it helps us understand back when we said, heaven is the presence of God, hell is the absence. People choose that for themselves. Um, hell is not some punitive thing that, you know, we did not expect. This is, this is something we choose for ourselves by offering wrong worship and, and oppressing the innocent to false gods. Break of fire. Yeah, and that's also where we get the fire imagery. And all sorts of legends emerge that like, oh, Gehenna was always on fire because of a trash heap. We have no real evidence for that. But what we do have evidence of is, is child sacrifice in this, in this valley in the Old Testament. So how can you go to hell without actually going to hell? The answer is, you come with me, July 2024, and you, can, you, and you can visit. Like, there you go. You visit hell. Amy's been to Gehenna, you know. <laughs> You know, um, Jonathan's been to Gehenna, Becky has, who else has been to Gehenna? You, you, so if you've been to Gehenna, you can see what hell is like. The other thing I want to comment is that what's sort of the, you mentioned it earlier, the, the first sort of biblical image of the presence of God outside of, of Eden, which is not ever, I don't recall it being um, symbolized in any kind of way. God was walking through the garden, but we have no image of what God looked like. The first image of what God um, not looks like, but the kind of a manifestation of God is what? We've already mentioned it once. What is it? Burning bush. Burning bush. Mm -hmm. What was the interesting description about, um, about the bush? It was not consumed. Consumed. Yes. Okay, so the presence of God is to be in the fire but not consumed. Mm -hmm. What is the absence of God, therefore? Consumed. Yeah, that's why the that's why the burning bush is an image of the of the Annunciation, where the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and um, she participated in that divine life. Yet she remained who she was. So when we participate with God, He sanctifies us. We do not cease to be who we are. The absence of God, we cease to be who we are. Mm -hmm. You see how that works? We are consumed. That's why it's so hard to come back from the devil. You don't. You don't. <laughs> it's, tr it's true. <laughs> it's very but, difficult. Yeah. I mean, 
the very few murderers say it in their deathbed, I believe in God, the Father, the, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Trinity, the Holy Ghost. Very few people who, who have committed murder will say that. This is not, not impossible, but this is a wonderful what transition. Gone, that far gone, yes. This correct. is a wonderful yeah, transition. Yeah, yeah. We've left we've left about six minutes to talk about universal salvation. <laughs> Dare we hope that all be saved, even the murder on death row? Um, this is obviously too big of a topic for five minutes, but there's a couple points. You have six. Go ahead. <laughs> there's a couple points uh, that I think are are worth making. So when we talk about we choose hell for ourselves, what does that actually leave open? Potentially, even though we know, actually, you know, we're not we're not speaking actually, but potentially what? To change your mind. Everyone has a potential to end up in heaven, right? So there is a potential that we speak of that hell is empty. Um, keep that in mind as we talk about this. So how do we actually live into that? And how do people wrestle with universal salvation? Um, Olivier Clement, I have I have two quick quotes from him. I think that are really helpful in framing this. He says, one. The theme of hell can only be broached in the language of I and thou. Obviously, thou being God. So when we talk about hell, this is personal. Um, He's paraphrasing, you know, a long-standing tradition of of other, you know, early Christian writers who basically said, I I acknowledge the existence of hell because I perceive my own ability to be there, but no one else's. Um, When we talk about hell, it is personal because this is a personal decision. Um, we don't speculate on the nature of hell for anybody. I mean, this is why Father Siva said this before, but when he does funerals on, for people, he never says they are in heaven or they are in hell. It's not ours to speculate about. That is, that is Christ as the judge. I mean, that's what we talked about with judgment. It's only his doing that, that guarantees that. He's the advocate. He is the advocate. And then he, Olivier Clement also says this, Prayer then has the last word. We do not speculate about hell, neither need we formulate a doctrine of universal salvation. We simply pray that all may be saved. So, universal salvation um, is a big word that simply means everyone ends up in heaven. And there's the church has had various ways of kind of trying to explain this. Um, Origen is a famous church father that tries to deal with this. Um, I think his theory is that there are stages of spiritual development. Um, So he looks at, you know, um, hell and that kind of thing, and he says, well, the the doors must never be opened, so, you know, fire purifies you a little bit more, you move a little closer. Fire purifies, he moves a little... So he kind of tries to develop this theory of universal salvation. It is never accepted by any church council, but he does a lot of work in trying to get us asking the right questions. uh, Isaac of Nineveh was an early early church writer who always talked about um, hell, and I hope it's never never full, or I hope I hope it's empty. And each person he encounters, you know, he basically says, "I I pray that my eyes are open so that I can perceive them in heaven." Um, that is kind of what he dedicates his life to. Another famous writer, and I'll, I'll briefly summarize his argument, is Hans Urs von Balthasar, and he has a book called "Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved." Um, quoting, you know, this phrase, you know, that, that all men may be saved. And, and the idea is God says that his will is for what? Everyone to be saved. God does not wish damnation upon anyone. So von Balthasar is basically saying, let's flesh this out a little bit. What's it look like to hope that all may be saved? And what he does is, is kind of interesting. He actually says, um, G- 
Jesus speaks about hell, right? And he, and he tells parables that, to talk about people in hell. So when we universalize it, it's a little hard to say, well, hell's not a thing, or it doesn't exist, or there's nobody there, because Jesus himself talks about Gehenna, um, and talks about separating and sending people there, or they send themselves there. But then he, he individualizes it. He says, okay, but when I look at Father Steve or Dwayne, when I look at specific people, what is my calling as a Christian? It's to pray for their salvation. Well, can't I individually look at each person on earth, maybe not with my physical eyes, but spiritually, and say, well, I'm praying for their salvation. So we're caught between two crossroads, right? Universally, we acknowledge the existence of hell. We know Jesus tells parables about people choosing that for themselves. But individually, I pray for everyone's salvation. I pray that you, you know, wake up to the, to the glory of, of God. So how, what do we do with that? And this is kind of how he um, summarizes it. Let me make sure I, I find this. Um, hopefully I wrote this quote down. Yes. So he says, uh, I'm going to get your help with this Latin word. Um, presumptio. 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 Okay. There are two kinds of hopelessness. And he's quoting another theologian here. Notice what he's saying. There's two kinds of hopelessness. One is despair. That's a hopelessness that we resonate with a lot. We understand the, that. But then he other... The other one he says is presumptio, and he says that is a perverse anticipation of the fulfillment of hope. Despair is an is anticipation of the non-fulfillment of hope, and to presume or to be presumptuous is an anticipation that, of course, that is going to happen. He says those are two kinds of hopelessness. You either say, I know hell is empty, and I no chance am I going there. And the other is to say, well, there's no hope for us at all. It's just despair. Nobody's going to heaven. He says those are both wrong. To be so dogmatic that you say, I know nobody, nobody is in hell, or to be so despairing that you say, I know nobody's in hell. The hope is in the middle. It's to actually acknowledge that there's a hope that all people are saved. Um, and I think that is, I think, the best way to actually navigate the Christian tradition of universal salvation. Um, and when we talk about hell and heaven... And especially when you think about friends and loved ones who, you know, were not Christian, who died outside of the church, what do you do with that? You pray for them, and you hope that all may be saved. That is not just a Christian commandment. I think that's actually a spiritual medicine for us. How do we deal with that? Well, we deal with it through hope, through faith, through the same faith that we have and have come to know for ourselves. We pray that somehow they will find that faith too. <laughs>